even though these special days that we have, this Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Passover before, uh, and the other holy days, uh, are sometimes able to be summed up in a sentence or two or three. If we ask what is the meaning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, I'm sure that many people would take only a sentence or two, maybe three, to be able to sum it up. But you could sum it up fairly simply. And so if that's the case, why do we keep these days over and over again? Mr. Herbert Armstrong often began a Holy Day sermon by asking the very simple question, why are we here? And he asked that question time and time again. And people had various questions because we're not all there, uh, for example, and sometimes people took it lightly. But Mr. Armstrong understood something. And that was that there is a profound meaning to each one of these holy days, and it's more than an academic exercise. You might be able to write down the answer if you had a test from a class you're taking, but do you really comprehend to the very depth of your being the meaning of this festival that we are observing here at this time or the other festivals that we'll be observing? Many thought the answer was very simple, but Mr. Armstrong understood that most members really didn't get it. And before his death, he said many times, he said, I I don't think half of you get it. And sometimes he even said, I don't think 10% of you get it. And the 10% was probably much closer than the 50%. And how many times did Dr. Meredith say, get it, brethren? He used that term, get it. Uh, because he realized, too, that people were not understanding, they were not comprehending. It's so easy to understand something academically, be able to throw back an answer to something, but do we really understand it to the very depth of our being? And we really do need to as we get closer to the end of this age. If anything that we didn't get that Mr. Armstrong gave to us. It was the lesson of the two trees of Genesis. And he talked about the two trees time and time again. And he would say, I'm going to give you something you've never heard before. And uh, people would smile and laugh, and they'd think that, well, this is just an old uh, gentleman, old man that's forgotten. But oftentimes he would go through a certain series, and this way he he really understood new truths. He would go through part of it, but he would add to it constantly as he learned more. And he was so right that people did not understand the lesson of the two trees as we can look from history, how many people dropped by the wayside, never understood that there are two ways of life, and they were choosing the wrong way of life. These days emphasize two ways of life. One ends well, and the other does not end well. The significance of this, uh, of this whole uh, concept must not be taken lightly, and these days help us to more fully comprehend the lesson of the two trees that Mr. Armstrong so often referred to. Israel wanted freedom from the pain of slavery. They knew that they were suffering. We can look at a couple of verses very quickly here. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but back in the book of Exodus, the very first chapter, and verses 13 and 14, it tells us that the children of Israel were suffering 
under slavery. In verse 13 it says, So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, with harshness. And it says they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. And then the next chapter tells us, in verse 23, it says, Now it happened in the process of time, this is Exodus 2, verse 23, It happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. God heard their cries. He heard their moanings and their groanings. And yet this took place over many years' time. It didn't happen all in one day, but there were certain things that, that took place over a period of years where they slowly were brought into bondage and it got worse and worse. And so we need to understand that sometimes God allows time to go by. He doesn't solve all of our problems immediately at once. But nevertheless, God heard their cry and God began to intervene for them at that time. Now, the world in which we live is in pain. It's in suffering. Right now, we have a, a surge across the U.S. border from Central and South America and also other parts of the world, Africa and parts of Asia. We have people who are coming to this country right now, and they would come to other countries. They would come to Canada. They would come to Europe. We had uh, the migration that came out of the Middle East and Africa a couple of years back uh, where large numbers were coming because there are large areas of this world that are suffering under terrible government, under uh, terrible weather in some cases, but oftentimes it's civil wars that are taking place, guerrilla uh, uh, uprisings that are taking place. Gang warfare is a major problem in Central and South America. And so people are trying to get out, and they even send their kids alone through uh, terrible circumstances. Many of them don't survive, or many of them are abused. But they come by themselves, hoping that the parents can follow. Uh, you know, they have a little phone number on the back of their wrist so they can find the parent. But nevertheless... Uh, we, we see a world that is suffering. We have a constant stream of requests for anointings uh, from people or for prayer that come into the telecast. We have people that call our call center and want prayer, and we have to tell them this is not a, a prayer line. We don't have that. Uh, we, we simply cannot you know, handle that sort of a, a responsibility. Our, our responsibility, and we do pray for people. We pray for our, our subscribers, our donors, our our coworkers, and we pray for those that write in or call in about being sick in a, in a general sense. But to take the time for every individual person that called in would just consume all of our time. And frankly, many times people don't even have the faith. They, they just call this program and that program and some other program, uh, not really understanding what God's healing is really all about. They're just hurting people. They're suffering people that want to be brought out of the pain that they're under. And that's our world today. Uh, we see so much suffering in our world. But the children of Israel failed to realize that there was a greater 
suffering, a greater slavery, a greater form of bondage that they were under than merely having to work for the Egyptians. That was bad enough. And it was harsh bondage, there's no doubt about it. But they failed to realize there is a greater bondage that this world is in. And maybe we could put together, uh, write an article, uh, not an article, but a, a booklet, A World Held Hostage, that was back in the worldwide days, how, how Mr. Armstrong, and uh, I think uh, came from him more than anybody else, but others uh, talked about it, how this world is held in bondage to a the, the God of this world. And there there's a, a great deal of suffering as a result of being a part of, of a world that is being ruled by Satan the devil. Over in Romans, the sixth chapter, it talks about this kind of bondage. Romans, the sixth chapter, and we'll begin in verse 16. The Apostle Paul speaking here to the Romans. He says, Do you not know, this is Romans 6, 16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey... You are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. There are two ways. Sin, which leads to death, or obedience, that leads to righteousness. But he says here that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey. The fact is that we are the servant or the slave of someone either that of God, and when we say a slave, a servant of God, really probably more correct the way we would understand it. We're not a slave being beaten, as it were, by God, but we are a servant of God, or we can be a servant of this world, a servant of sin, and the servant of sin is going to pay a very heavy price. But the servants of God are going to be rewarded wonderfully. So he says here, verse 17, But God be thanked... Well, let me finish verse 16. Uh, Whether uh, of sin leading death or obedience leading to righteousness, then verse 17, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now he's talking to the Romans as though they have come out of sin and they are obedient to God, and yet we read... And all of Paul's writings, whether it be in to the Corinthians or even here to the Romans, that people didn't always get it. They didn't always understand the message. And so he is reminding them, he is helping them to see something that, you know, this is a reminder of what we have come out of. He says, and having been set free from sin, not free to sin, but freed from sin, from the transgression of the law... He says, you became slaves or servants of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, that was before our conversion, certainly, and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. You know, when we find that people drop by the wayside, they're... They're part of the church for a period of time, and then they drop by the wayside. So often, other things come out that lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. There was a very famous uh, parliamentarian 
in Canada a number of years ago. When I first went there, he was kind of a famous individual. He was always unhappy. He was uh, a homosexual, openly so. He was always unhappy. And what finally brought his downfall was he was at some sort of a, a trade show, and he stole a very expensive ring that was on display there. Of course, they had him on camera. You know, lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. And we need to understand that, that little things that we do can lead to bigger things. And we need to get rid of all lawlessness that might be in us and not compromise in those ways because lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. He says here, uh, Present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For Verse 20, For when you are slaves of sin, you are free in regard to righteousness. When I was a part of the world, I never thought much about the Sabbath. I, well, that was Sunday to me. Uh, I was free. I, I could do anything I wanted to on Saturday. I was still breaking God's law. And there was a, a penalty for it because I was not understanding the truth, obviously, and that leads to a whole lot of other things. But that's what he means. We are free from, from righteousness. We were set free from it, not not that we were free to to do things that are unrighteous or that we were without penalties from it, but we were, our minds were not tuned into it. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then of the things which you are now ashamed? So you look back and you are ashamed of some things. Maybe not the, the Sabbath was not a big deal, but you know, there were other things you were doing, obviously that you were very much ashamed of, and we should be ashamed that we were not obeying God, especially if we had the Bible and were old enough to read it. But he says, for the end of those things is death. That's the end result of that. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. And on the Passover evening, how many times did we read about eternal life or everlasting life, that Christ came that we might not uh, perish, but that we should have everlasting life? Well, John 3.16, of course, there. But there were other scriptures that we read there in, in the book of John, and also uh, especially in John 6, and about the, the bread and the wine, and how we partake of that for life, for eternal life. This is a fabulous thing when we think about eternal life because it's so hard for us in our day-to-day lives to take that as seriously as we should. We're all here for a very short period of time. And and there, there comes a time when life after death becomes all important. And I, and I hope that we we realize what God is offering to us. It's an incredible blessing that we have here. The animals are not given life after death. We read of nothing there. Now, some people ask, well, what, can my dog be resurrected? Well, I don't, I don't think so. But if I'm wrong, hey, I had, a, I had a beautiful German shepherd. I'd be loved to see it come back to life. But I, I just don't think that that's what God has in mind. But if he does, if I'm wrong about that, hey, that's great, that's wonderful. There are things that we simply do not know and do not understand at this time. But what we do know is he's offering to you and to me eternal life. And eternal life is a long, long, long life. It goes on forever. This 
short period of time that we're here is nothing compared to what God is offering to us. Without pain, without suffering, without getting tired, uh, be able to, according to Jesus, from what he did, walk through a wall. Uh, people think, well, I don't know, I want to be a spirit being, especially young people don't. But they want to be Superman or what is it, uh, Spider-Man or I don't know, whatever the, the latest Marvel uh, uh, hero might be, uh, Captain America. We want to be able to do supernatural things. So, you know, God is offering to us something far greater than anything that can be put on the screen today. Uh, there's nothing to be compared to it. And we, we only see through a glass, glass darkly. We don't really understand ourselves what God is offering to us. But we should meditate on those things and think about those things. He says, for the wages of sin is death. We have two, two options. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, it's not something we have inherently, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have this option or that option. And God wants us to choose and to choose wisely. In uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 22, it shows us that there is a difference between physical and spiritual slavery. He says, For he who is called in the Lord while a slave, and he was talking to people who were slaves, Many of the Corinthians, no doubt, were slaves. And he says, For he who is called the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. So even in slavery, you can be free. And so he says here, Likewise, he who is called while free, so you can be outside, you can be the master of the slave, but, he says, is Christ's slave. If we, if we understand that Christ is our master, we serve Him. We, we do what He says. So there's a physical slavery and there's a spiritual slavery here. And we need to understand that there, there is that physical bondage that we can be under, but there is a spiritual freedom that we can have through Jesus Christ. Let's go over to Second Peter 2. 2 Peter 2 and verse 18. This is so, this is so important, brethren. I, I wish that we could, could fully comprehend it to the very depth of what Peter is saying here. But Second Peter 2, beginning in verse 18, it says, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. In other words, there are people who have escaped from the heirs of this world, but then you have people come along and they offer freedom. That happened worldwide. You know, free, free again. We are free from the law. And how many people swallowed that? How many people drank of that poison, that Kool-Aid, you might say? Uh, reference back to... Uh, Jim Jones and uh, a terrible incident that our younger people probably know little about. Or a whole class, a whole group of people went off down to South America and they set up a, their little kingdom there and when it was investigated they put out the Kool-Aid poison for everyone to drink and I forget how many, 500 or so people 
uh, drank the Kool-Aid. And spiritually speaking, tens of thousands of people drank the the uh, the Kool-Aid of the worldwide church that was going in the wrong direction that uh, turned everything upside down. They drank that. They swallowed it because they were being given freedom, freedom, liberty. And if you notice, every every communist organization, uh, uh, freedom fighters, they, they all call themselves liberation armies. You know, that's, that's a term, they, liberation, we're bringing you liberty. And they eventually bring them into a bondage that they didn't have before. But this is a tactic of Satan. He uses it over and over again. I'm giving you liberty. I'm giving you freedom. You don't have to, to do whatever it is that... Uh, they think that is is going to bring them freedom. While they promise them, verse 19, liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. So we need to understand that there is that bondage out there that we can be brought into uh, with a bondage of sin and just following along with this world's way of doing things. Over in James, the second chapter, James 2. On the other hand, this liberty that the world offers, James tells us that there's another kind of liberty, a true liberty. And he speaks of it over in, well, actually, chapter 1, verse 25, where he says, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So if we are following the perfect law of liberty, then we're going to be blessed in it. If we're not a forgetful hearer, as he says there. Then over in the second chapter, he talks about the Ten Commandments. And in verse 10, he says, But whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point, he's guilty of all. And then he gives examples here of the Ten Commandments, several of them. And then in verse 12, he says, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. That's the standard by which God is going to judge us. Now, we understand the blood of Christ covers those transgressions that are done uh, out of weakness and uh, out of ignorance and so forth. We understand that. But we cannot turn back to a way of life, practicing a way of life contrary to God's law, and think we're going to be in the kingdom. And, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But he says here, uh, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Let's go over to... Um, uh, 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, because fundamentally, think about it this way, fundamentally, unleavened bread is about two different ways of life. It's a choice between two different ways. And and I don't think we often just think of it that way. We, we, we know that there's leavening and there's unleavening. We, we see that as two different things, but do we ever think of it in terms of this is a choice between two ways of life. This is a choice between the tree of, of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We don't always think of it quite in those terms, but I, I really want to bring that home today. Maybe you've thought of it and, and uh, you, you understand that, but we need to understand that there are these two ways. 
And as he says here in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, uh, he says, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And then our response, I, I believe that was in the uh, the video, I, it was either in a sermon, but I think it was in the video that we watched last night by Mr. Wallace Smith. It shows that Passover is, is what Christ has done for us, but unleavened bread is, is what we do in response to that sacrifice. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Because Christ has been sacrificed for us, therefore let us respond to that sacrifice by keeping the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So you have malice and wickedness on one side and sincerity and truth on the other. Now, when you look at these words, and I'm going to show you that, that, that one really fundamentally refers to what happens in the mind, the thinking of the individual, and the other has to do with what one does. Uh, if you go back to the the book of Exodus, uh, we read that God was, was going to write His laws in our mind and in our hands, the thoughts as well as the actions. And this is really what we have here because He says uh, that malice, which is what we think, the wrong thoughts, and wickedness, which are the deeds that we perform. And then he says they are replaced with sincerity. That's what is in the mind. And truth. Now, you may not think of truth as being action, but that's what the Scriptures tell us, as we shall see here. Uh, it's not enough to be just sincere. You have to also worship in truth. Let's go over to John the fourth chapter, John 4 and verse 23. John 4 and verse 23. It says here, But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. And that has to do with the mind and the, the, the thinking part of it, and in truth, in spirit and truth. Now, there are those who are very sincere, but they don't have the truth. They don't live by the truth. And Jesus said to this woman there at the well that the time is coming when you won't worship in Jerusalem or in this mountain here, but you'll worship the Father in spirit and truth, for, for the Father seeks such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now let's go over to John, 1 John, 1 John 1, and I'm going to show you that truth has to do with actions. Uh, it, it can be taken in various ways. In other words, truth can be uh, just a statement. Uh, it can be a principle, but also it can be an action. In 1 John 1, in verse 6, it says, but uh, it says, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, if we claim that our fellowship is with God the Father and with Jesus Christ, and walk in darkness, 
we live a different way of life than the way that that they live, that, that Christ lived when he walked this earth, or that God has uh, pronounced for us to live. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk, walk in darkness, we lie and, notice, do not practice the truth. Practice the truth. Even the New Bible Commentary Revised points out that this is an unusual statement because we normally don't think of truth as being something that we practice or that we do. Uh, let, let's go on a little further. Uh, to, but let me state this, that to know the truth is one thing, to practice or live it is quite another thing. And there are many people who, who profess the truth, but do they live it? And this is where you and I need to examine ourselves. Do we really understand uh, our, ourselves and where we're going? And, and are we really in the faith or are we just going through the motions and warming a seat? Now, this is the choice that we've had from the very beginning. Mr. Armstrong talked about it in terms of the two trees the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He also spoke of it as two different ways, the way of outgoing concern uh, of give or the way of selfishness, self-centeredness, self-will on the other side and the way of get. And he presented it that way to many leaders around this world. He didn't just quote the Bible in every way, but that's what the, the Bible is talking about, the way of... of uh, of outgoing concern or the way that it is not. There was a very good sermon by Mr. Lambert Greer some years ago. You can look it up. It's out there, uh, no doubt, on our Living Church of God website. But am I my brother's keeper? And he went right back to Genesis where uh, Cain killed Abel, and God asked him, "Where uh, you know, where's your brother Abel? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? And Mr. Greer went on to point out how this is what the Bible is all about, that we are our brother's keeper, that we have outgoing concern for the other individual. And that means sometimes being inconvenienced. In fact, a lot of times it means inconvenience. Uh, some things never happen when we want them to happen. But this is, this is a, it's a, it's a very powerful sermon, a very powerful concept. Am I my brother's keeper? Two different ways of life. Cain was not his brother's keeper, but the rest of the Bible is teaching us that we should be our brother's keeper. We should care for the other person. Those two different ways of life that can be explained in, in different terms. Back in Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter, uh, a passage that many of us have, have memorized, uh, Deuteronomy 30, or at least a portion of it, we have memorized. But I'm going to start in verse 15. Uh, and verse 19 is the one that is more famous, but it's all tied together. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. He says, See, I have set before you today life and good. I've given you life and that which is good. Now, when you enjoyed that lamb or steak or fish or whatever it was that you had last night. I hope you appreciate it. I, so often at the Feast of Tabernacles, because of the background that I came from where, uh, you know, I, I, I began learning the truth with a, a, another friend and, and there was this older couple who said, well, the law's been done away with. You don't have to keep that burdensome law. 
So I, I often, when I'm having a fine meal during Feast Tabernacles or even uh, during occasions like this, I think, uh, you know, this is so burdensome, having to enjoy this, this special time with wonderful friends. And, uh, you know, last night I know we went over to, to somebody's home and they a couple of families had young children and we had to, uh, I hope it's not out there on the Internet, but anyway, uh, several of us had to do a... Uh, uh, what do you call it, a puppet show uh, of the Ten Plagues and so forth. And we had not rehearsed this. They they had little bags with, uh, you know, the snake and with Pharaoh and, uh, you know, all that sort of thing. And uh, it was uh, pretty disastrous. But uh, my, my wife said that the, at least the adults enjoyed it, uh, seeing us uh, slaving away there. But th- there are many things that can be done, but... You know, that's a wonderful time that God has given to us. He gives us these these special occasions. And so when he says, I've set before you life and good, brethren, he's given us a wonderful way of life, far more so than the ways of this world. And he says here, uh, life and good, death and evil. That's on the other side. So you've got life and good here. You've got death and evil over here. And it is a choice that we have to make. And he says here, verse 16, "...and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commandments, His statutes, and His judgments." Do we love God's commandments, His statutes, His judgments, His way of life, how He works? Uh, Do we love those things, or do we... And you live and multiply, that's what God says, or, you know, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. God would bless the Israelites if they chose that way. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away, notice, drawn away, sometimes very slowly, sometimes very subtly, drawn away and worship other gods, now, one of the gods that people worship, one of the most common ones, in fact, the very first one, I guess you might say, is the self. When you think about it, you'll have no other gods before me. What is the one god that, that people have more than any other? I'm not talking about Buddha or something else. They may worship that, but it's the self. Here's how I think. Here's what I think. Here's what seems right to me. And yet God says uh, through the Proverbs, There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That's what leads to death, is the way that seems right unto a man. And as uh, Jeremiah said, I know that it is not in me uh, to, to know, or not in man, to know how to direct his steps. So correct me. You know, cleanse me. That's uh, Jeremiah 10, verse 23, 24, I believe it is. Uh, You can look it up. I don't always quote things exactly. But, you know, it's kind of encouraging when you read the New Testament and they're quoting the Old Testament. Sometimes they're not quoting exactly word for word uh, because of translations and everything, but they're giving the sense of of what it is. So Jeremiah knew that, uh, you know, it was not within man, it was not within him to know how to direct his steps. And yet how many people are self-confident and they think, oh, I know how to live, I know this, I know that, uh, I'm right, these other people are wrong, and, and so forth. It, it's, it's amazing how we worship ourselves in that way. 
He says, verse 17, But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. For us, we may not be in the kingdom of God if we allow ourselves to be drawn away into a different way of life. And we say, well, that can't happen to me. But brethren, think and look. Those of us who have been around a few decades know how many have fallen away from the truth and, and gone right back into the world. They've fallen away to various you know, groups and everything, but I mean, some of them are just falling right back into this world once again, keeping Christmas, keeping Easter, Halloween, all of those things have given up on prayer and Bible study because they're free. We, we need to take these things seriously. He said, I call heaven and earth, and this is the passage that many have, have memorized, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Not only you, but your descendants. And I often tell the young people at our summer camp when I read that scripture, if you, as a young person, live contrary to the right way, if you're violating the rules, if you're doing all the things that you shouldn't do, uh, you know, you are setting an example for the next campers that come along. In other words, if you're sneaking out at night, you are, uh, well, you, you just name whatever it is that they shouldn't be doing. If you do those things, then the younger campers are going to notice that. And what are they going to do? They're going to do the same things. And then that's going to go from, you know, younger campers, younger campers, younger campers. And suddenly you who have gotten married and have children, now those become campers. And what are they going to do? They're going to follow the way that the path has been set before them. There, there, There's a, you know, those things that we do and we're young, they come back to bite us, don't they? I think all of us know that in certain ways. They come back to bite us, whether it be the way we've treated our body, and eventually it comes back to uh, to be very painful in some cases, or just bad habits that we have developed when we're young that are so hard to overcome later on, whether it just be laziness or uh, you know not putting first things first in our lives. All those things become very difficult to break as we get older. But he's set before us two ways. I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. So he's given us that opportunity. There are two ways. And we have the way of leavening or the way of unleavening. But there are two ways of life. Whether it be the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or the tree, and the tree of life. However we want to describe it, there are those two ways. And that's been... Uh, what God has set before us. In Psalm 1, this is another passage that shows the two ways of life. I, I love Psalm 1. It's a, it's a short one. It, uh, it, it really just gets to the heart and the core of the problem and, and really sets the stage for the rest of the Psalms. He says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, 
nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And, and there's a progression there. You, you stand or you walk. You're walking along with people who are, are not following this way of life, that have different ideas. Uh, you know, you walk in the counsel of the uh, ungodly, and eventually you, you, you begin to stand, and it's a little bit more serious relationship there, and eventually you end up sitting in the seat of the scornful, those who are sarcastic and uh, make, make fun of and ridicule. That, that's, there's a progression that is there. He says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, really thinks about, how does this apply to me? You see, during these days of unleavened bread, we are to be examining ourselves. So we examine ourselves in the light of God's law and God's ways. And do we, do we understand, do we meditate and think about, how does this apply to me? How does what I'm hearing from the work of God, from those ministers that God has set up to, to teach, uh, am I understanding what they're saying? Am I getting the big picture? Did those who were sitting at, you know, in front of Mr. Armstrong, did they get it? Those who were sitting before Dr. Merritt, did they get it? Do we get it today with what's coming out in our magazines and our literature? Are we even reading what's coming out? I think sometimes people get busy and they, they've got time for Facebook. They've got time for YouTube, they've got time for searching everything on the Internet, checking out all the conspiracies, but are they reading the literature? Are they comprehending what is being said? You know, I, I wrote an article there about the slaying the uh, social media monster. I don't think that even I understood when I wrote that just how important that is. Look how many people are in trouble today because of something they put on Facebook X number of years ago. There, there was a lady that was being hired by, was it uh, Vogue 17, I think it was? But she wrote something 10 years ago or whenever it was. You know, in this woke culture, you can't escape. Anything you've got out there, there's going to be somebody out there who's looking for it, looking for a way to condemn you. You know, one of the best things we can do is just stay off the Internet. Uh, I, I, I think that people, they, they just throw stuff out there. They throw their opinions all out there. And, you know, when they start looking for those who believe the things we do, they're not going to have to look very hard. They're going to find us. And sadly, even if you're not out there, people refer to you and, yeah, I mean, I, those of us who are in the ministry, we know we're out there, and we, we know what we're, we're, we're doing, and we're not going to change what we're doing. But I think we need to be careful what we say, and especially when we say things that are not godly. And there are people who say things and use language that is totally ungodly out there. Um, these things can come back to bite you. You know, he says here that uh, the one who... who uh, it does not follow this world. He says, He shall be, verse 3, like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in a season, whose leaf also does not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Wherever he, whatever that, that individual does uh, in life is going to prosper. But, he says, verse 4, the ungodly are not so. They're like chaff which the wind drives away. 
Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, uh, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They're not going to sit in the congregation of the righteous. There's even a reference here back there about standing, walking, and so forth. Uh, you know, there's a certain parallel there. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So you've got two different ways of life. You've got the way of leaven. You've got the way of unleavened bread. You've got the way of the tree of life. You've got the way of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The way of give versus the way of get. The way of being my brother's keeper or not being my brother's keeper. All these things go back to two different ways of life. Let's notice here in Revelation, the 22nd chapter. We find this all through the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 14. He says, Blessed are those who do His commandments. Notice those who do His commandments. That they may have the right to the tree of life. Brings right back to Genesis, the right to the tree of life. And may enter through the gates into the city, the new Jerusalem. But outside are dogs, those who are left behind, those who will not be there are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral. When it says dogs, it's talking about homosexuals and sodomites and so forth, uh, sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Notice that term, who practices a lie. That reminds us back of First uh, John 1, 6, those who practice the truth. You see, practicing means action. And there are those who practice the truth and there are those who practice a lie. You can you know, tie those scriptures together once again. You know, mankind is short-sighted. We look at what pleases us here and now. And yet in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, we see that Abraham and others look to the future Hebrews 11, verse 9. This is the faith chapter. And he says here, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. This is Abraham. Heirs of the promises. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He was looking to a, a city in the future. Jerusalem was was not uh, a city as we understood it at the time of Abraham. It may have been a city, but uh, it was not what we, we think of it today. So it just says a city, but we understand it as New Jerusalem. He was looking for a better world. Even in his day, everything was not perfect. And he was looking for a better world. And so he was willing to live in tents and... Uh, you know, go about from pillar to post, you might say, as opposed to living in a comfortable home in a city that uh, had, you know, the world's all the world's goods. Notice over in verse 24 of this same chapter, Hebrews 11:24. Now speaking of Moses, he said, "By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather." to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. The pleasures of sin for a season, I think is the way the old King James has it. 
yes, there is pleasure in sin, and uh, but it, but it's short lived. There can be pleasure in sin. I guess that when you smoke a joint of marijuana, there must be something pleasurable about it. Otherwise, people wouldn't do it. I don't know because I've never smoked one. Uh, it doesn't make me any great. It was not as big of a deal quite. When, you know, when I was in high school, I wouldn't have known where to get it. And after you grow up a little bit, you decide, well, I really don't need that. But uh, I, I learned not to smoke early on when my father gave me a cigar and I got sick. And I decided this is not a good idea. So I, I you know, I'm thankful for that. I don't practice that yourselves. There was a little bit more to the story than that, but uh, uh, that's not, probably not the best way to teach your children not to smoke. Uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, he, uh, he, the passing pleasures of sin, sin may have a pleasure, but it's very short-lived. And afterward come guilt, come uh, penalties, uh, you know, come habits that are difficult to break that have consequences to them. He says, Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith, verse 27, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He had a choice, Egypt or the way of God. And he made the right choice. And it took 40 years for God to get Egypt out of him. You know, because he picked up a lot of bad habits there and he had to be trained to be able to uh, bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. It took 40 years. He was about 40 years old when he left and when he was 80 years old, he came back and, and God used him in a powerful way. There was a lot that he had to learn. He couldn't just immediately go back and bring the children of Israel out. Not that he it probably was not even on his mind to do that. But nevertheless, people get very impatient if they aren't ordained early enough, if they aren't made president of the spokesman club early enough, if they aren't given some responsibility to hand out songbooks at services, whatever it might be. You have people that are not willing to be patient or to wait, but they know better, and they you know, then get upset over something like that. Brethren, don't. Don't, don't be impatient. Let God choose for you the path that you should go and and what he wants of you not what you want of yourself because you're going to make the wrong choice if you decide you're going to do it all on your own you know we're told here during this feast of unleavened bread to examine ourselves we read that on passover night in first corinthians 11 second uh, corinthians 13 and verse 5 tells us that we are to examine ourselves whether we are in the faith or not and that's a pretty, pretty serious statement, whether you're even in the faith or not. And that's right at the end of Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians thirteen five. But isn't it difficult, truly, for us to stand back and honestly examine ourselves? It's so difficult for us to do so, isn't it? Because we're used to ourselves. We we're used to making excuses for ourselves and our behaviors and so forth. It's difficult to honestly examine ourselves about how much of the world has influenced us in our thinking and our, our ways. Uh, this last year, I think more than any year of my life, I've seen that it is so political. 
and you've got people on this side of issues and people on the other side of issues and people get all caught up in it and you know the the the, the world is trying to divide us the world is trying to get you to be so upset so angry and so one-sided in things it I don't doubt that there are politicians who really want to bring about this divide, and certainly in the media as well. It's very clearly seen in the media, one side or the other. But we see this in Facebook and Twitter posts, how people are caught up in the politics of this world. Members of the church, they've taken sides one way or the other. We see how people are uh, judgmental in their views toward others. Uh, politicians and media, as I said, want to divide us, and they're, they're doing it. They're, they're very good at it. So how about you? Do you have a binary approach toward life, toward what's happening in our world? When I say binary, you know, two. That there, there's good and there's evil. Well, in that sense, there is. But do we divide people up into this person is good, this person is evil. And so if this good person says something, wow, we, we listen to that person. But if the other person says something, we write that person off no matter what he or she says because that person is on the wrong side of things. You know, I'll, I'll just bring it down to something real uh, basic here for Americans. And uh, you, you can put it in terms of your country. But if you think that everything that Mr. Trump did was right... And everything that Mr. Biden does is wrong. There's something wrong with your thinking. If you think that Mr. Biden is all right and Mr. Trump didn't do anything that was right, there's something wrong in your thinking. You know, both men are flawed human beings. And we might tend to be more one-sided than the other, but we, we need to learn to think in terms of what's, what's being said, what is right as opposed to getting polarized and divided in the way that our world is. And we are very much in that case today. We see this lack of ability to see oneself in the way that some people get caught up in the emotions of this age. Because this goes along with it, the emotions of this age. And if there is one emotion that Satan is stirring up more than any other, and he has plenty of people that are complicit with him, and that is the emotion of anger. Of anger. And along with that, hatred toward other individuals. You know, when God says that you shall not speak evil of a dignitary or a ruler of your people, do we follow that? Or do we think that this is an exception to it? The Proverbs tell us, Proverbs 22, 24, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go. Well, make no friendship. Do we make friendship on the Internet, on television, or wherever it might be, with people who are angry or people who are stirring up anger? Proverbs 29, 22, An angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. That's where it's going to go. That's where it's going to lead. You know, anger sells. Anger sells. And the news media understand this. And so does Satan. 
the idea is promoted that you must get involved to change Satan's world. And so we occasionally hear of our members. They're going out and they're marching for this cause or marching for that cause. Do you really think you can change Satan's world? I hope you don't think so, because you're not going to. People say, well, one person can change. Yeah, that's true. We can change some things by by doing what's right. We, we need to do God's way and let that change uh, other people. But we're not going to transform Satan's world. He'll just take it off in another direction, as the article I wrote in the, uh, I think, Living Church News. It's hard to keep track, or Tomorrow's World, but I think it's Living Church News. The only time we're in the middle is when we're going from this ditch over to the other ditch. That's the only time we're in the middle of the road. Satan will take us from one ditch, and he'll take us right into the next one. And so we need to recognize we're not going to change Satan's world. We might be a light in Satan's world, but we're not going to transform it. I'd like to give you uh, three lessons here very quickly uh, before we close here. Uh, Three lessons for us about how we make decisions in life. There are three examples that, that are instructive for us. The first one is found in Joshua, the ninth chapter, Joshua 9. And it shows the kind of decisions that people make. And we are not exempt from it. We make the same mistakes that they made. And let's look here at uh, Joshua, the ninth chapter. And I'll begin in verse 3. It says, When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho, this is after they'd come into the Promised Land, and also at Ai, they they worked craftily and they went and pre pretended to be ambassadors, and they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet. In other words, they took uh, the, the food that they had, the bread uh, that, that was moldy, and they had old sandals, and they, they pretended as though they had come from a far away country. Because Joshua and the children of Israel were not to make any agreements with the people in the land of Canaan. And these people were, they were looking out for their self-interest. You can't blame them. They were terrified of the children of Israel and what God was doing through them. So they, they pretended to be somebody that they weren't. And so they, they came to Joshua, verse 6, to the camp at Gilgal, and they, they said in the latter part of verse 6, We have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. Verse 8, But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where did you come from? And they said, From a very far country your servants have come because of the name of the Eternal your God, for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. And so uh, the bottom line is, you can read the rest of it. Joshua and the children of Israel made a covenant with them to protect them, a... a, a, a uh, what we call it today, a treaty with them. Now, they should not have done so. And then right after they did this, they found out, oh, they're not from a far country. They're just right over here. They made that decision. We'll talk about why in a moment. But let's take a look at the next one. The next one is in Judges. Book of Judges. We'll turn to chapter 20. Judges 20. And... I'll begin in verse 7. We'll just kind of skim over this a little bit. But uh, here it is where this uh, 
a Levite's concubine was abused by the the Benjamites, uh, some men of Benjamin. A terrible, terrible story. And uh, it really highlights, you know, at the end or toward the end of uh, the book of Judges, what happens when everybody does what is right in his own eyes? When there's no king, there's no authority, there's no uh, authority for people to look to, but they just all do whatever's right in their own eyes. Uh, and so this awful case came there, and the children of Israel were so incensed by it, this uh, Levite chopped his concubine up into 12 pieces and sent them to all the 12, 12 tribes of Israel, and they come together in a, a great mass of people. And uh, he says, uh, verse 7, Look, all you children of Israel, give your advice and counsel here and, and now. So the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, nor will any uh, turn back to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go out, go up against it by lot. And uh, we'll take ten men out of every hundred uh, in other words, a tithe of all the people who'd come together there throughout all the tribes of Israel, a hundred out of every thousand and a thousand out of every ten thousand to make provisions for the people that when they come to Gibeah and Benjamin, they may repay all the vileness that they have done in Israel. So they, they go out here and, and basically say, turn over those evil men who did this. But like so many things, like so many countries, we can have a citizen that goes over in a foreign country and does something awful and terrible. And, oh, he's an American citizen or he's a Canadian citizen or whatever the citizen. So we've got to protect him no matter what he did. And and the Benjamites were not going to turn them over. So what is the result of all this? Verse 18 says, Then the children of Israel arose and went up to the house of God to inquire of God. They said, Which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah first. So the children of Israel rose in the morning, and they encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of Israel put themselves in battle array. Then, verse 21, the children of Benjamin came out, and they cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites, the Benjamites, the bad guys, won the battle. Now that's we have that's hard to understand. So then we read in verse 22, the people, that is the men of Israel, encouraged themselves, and they again formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. Then the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening, and asked counsel, Lord, saying, "Shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin?" And the Eternal said, "Go up against him." So the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin on the second day. And Benjamin went out, verse 25, against them from Gibeah on the second day and cut down to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Israel. Now they've lost 40,000 people, soldiers, all these who drew the sword. Then the children of Israel, verse 26, uh, that is, all the people went up and came to the house of God and wept. And they sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Eternal. And the children of Israel inquired of the Eternal, and they said, you know, shall we, uh, uh, shall, middle of verse 28, shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hands. 
So we read of this account, and it seems like, well, they were they were talking to God. They were seeking God, but things didn't work out very well, did they? We'll come back to it in a moment. Let's take a look at the third example. That's in 1 Samuel 6. 1 Samuel and verse 6. And we'll just read one verse here. 1 Samuel 6 and verse 19. This is where the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines and Eli and his sons died, and, and now the ark has been brought back. The Philistines are under a curse, and so they send the cart back to Israel. And it comes back to this, this location, and it says here, uh, and, and the, well, I'll just read verse 19, I guess it is. It says, Then he, that is God, struck the men of Beth Shemesh. This is where the ark came to because they had looked into the ark of the Eternal. He struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Eternal had struck the people with a great slaughter. Over 50,000 people died. Why? Because they looked into the ark of the Eternal, something they were not to do. Now, what are we to learn from these three lessons? There are lessons that we can learn here about the decisions that we make, about the choices that we make in this life. The first one is that uh, we must seek God's counsel in everything. Now, I say everything. I don't mean whether I'm going to have eggs or or, or cereal for breakfast. I, I don't mean that. I think you understand what I mean. But anything that is of, of significance, we need to seek God's counsel. That's the mistake that Joshua and the children of Israel made. They they just looked at the facts. They looked at what they could see, the moldy bread, the old shoes and everything, what they were being told, but they didn't seek God before they made a covenant, a an agreement, a treaty with these people. And sometimes that's the mistake that we make. We don't really seek God before we get into something. Okay, that's the first lesson. What about judges? Here were people that did seek God, didn't they? Well, go back and read the 20th chapter. The first thing is they set the lines in battle array, and then they go up to God and say, shall we, shall we do this? Or, or actually what they said at the beginning was, who should go up first? Not even whether we should go, but who should go first? Well, send Judah up first. And they lose what, 22,000 men or 18,000, whichever it was. And then they set the battle array again, the lines in array again the second time. They're getting ready to fight them again. And then they go to God and they say, you know, uh, shall we go up there again? Well, they'd already made up their mind, hadn't they? And God said, yeah, go up again. And when they finally come to God, they say, do you want us to fight against them or not? They finally came to God in the right way. You know, sometimes we make up our mind before we go to God. I don't know how many people I have known over the years that make a decision in life that is so wrong. It's, it's, it's obvious to anyone and everyone, but I fasted and I prayed about it. I know this is God's will. I don't know how many times I've been told by people that this, this 
relationship, uh, this marriage that I'm going into, was made in heaven. In fact, when somebody says, this is a marriage made in heaven, I want to duck for cover. Because usually it's one that's going to hell. You know, it's, uh, it's going the wrong direction. It's not going up to heaven. Going to the grave, it's, it's, it's going to be a bad decision. I, I don't mean that every case, but too often that's the case. In other words, when we already make up our mind, and then we go and pray about it, then we go and we fast about it, and we just have confirmed what we want, that was the mistake that they made there in Judges. You know, that's tough, isn't it? Because when you go in to pray about a decision, it's hard not to have an opinion of our own already. And that's why we have to really cry out to God to show us, not to show us what we want, but what He wants. And that, that's really a tough one, isn't it? I, I confess that's not easy for me. And I, I doubt that it's easy for you, but we have to learn that lesson because that's the lesson of Judges, the 20th chapter, is don't go into it with your mind made up already, with the battle lines already drawn up, and then say, shall I, you know, who, who goes up first? And then setting the battle lines in array again, and, oh, well, shall I go up? Well, I've already decided to go up. There's a powerful lesson in these examples. And then what's the third one? What's the third lesson of looking into the ark? Well, that's very simple. And that is that God didn't strike dead the first person who looked into the ark, did He? He waited to see who's going to jump on that bandwagon. How many are there? He's going to give them time to make that choice. Now, obviously, some people did not look into the ark. And we could bet that there were people that were curious, that wanted to look into it. But the more people looked into it, the more emboldened people were. So we must never think that there's safety in numbers when we rebel against God, when we violate one of God's principles. And yet that's human nature. Well, if they get away with it, well, then I must be able to get away with it. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're going out, they're committing fornication, so they didn't struck dead, so it must be okay. Look at all the people who have cast off God's view of marriage today. Well, they're all doing it, must be okay. We have too many people over the years that that are just going along with the world's way of doing things. So just because everybody's looking into the ark, do we look into the ark? Or do we stand strong and say, you know, God said don't do it, I'm not going to do it. These are three very powerful lessons that we can learn. And we can examine ourselves during this time. In conclusion, we must understand why we are here. When Mr. Armstrong asked that question, why are we here, he asked the question for a reason. He understood that you could use one or two sentences to explain the meaning of the day, but did you really comprehend what it was about? God offers us a choice, his way or our way, and our way is influenced by Satan the devil. That's fundamental to these days. There's leaven and there's unleavened. And that's a choice, the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth as opposed to malice and wickedness, the wrong thoughts and the wrong actions. We see that Israel trusted themselves. They didn't look to God. They trusted themselves. 
May we forsake this world and turn to God in everything. May these days be a turning point for each of us. I, I, I hope that, that we could, this year, because of all that we've gone through, I, I hope that we can really learn some deep lessons. I, I, I feel it myself, that I've learned things about myself that I didn't know before. I hope you feel that way as well. And I hope that we will then go forward and, and practice those lessons that we've learned. Not just have it as an intellectual thing, but, but actually change the things that we do. May these days be a turning point for each of us. And let us put out the leaven of malice and wickedness and feed on the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth.